With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the History of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 
Hello, this is the Gist of Freedom you're listening to, and I'm your host tonight, Leslie Gist. We have Solomon Norcos, direct descendant Irene J. Host, on the line tonight, and let's see if she's here. Are you here, Irene? Irene? Hello, Irene, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can hear you loud and clear. Um, oh, good. Today, Thank you. <laughs> great. We had I'm you sorry. on Go the ahead. show. We had you on the show once before. Um, it was right after the movie. And tonight you're on because you want to uh, ask our audience uh, to help promote a special project or sentiment that you have. But before we delve into that um, topic, let's first introduce you and tell the audience who you are, how you're connected to Solomon Northup, and um, and we'll start from there. Okay. My name is Irene Northup Zahus. I am uh, for Solomon. I am his great-great-granddaughter. I'm one of um, three, I believe. And um, I'm related to him through his son, Alonzo. Alonzo had nine children, and one of those happened to be my grandfather, whose name was John Henry Northrup. He had a a moniker by the name of Zip because he was a semi-pro and then professional Negro League baseball player. But uh, Zip went on to marry a white woman, That was his second marriage, and from that marriage is where my family tree branches out from. Actually, his son, uh, John, is my father. You appear to be um, Caucasian. Well, I look Caucasian, yeah. And you identify as a, a Caucasian. Correct. I identify as Caucasian only because that has been, you know, what my family has done for us. Okay. And that doesn't, right, that doesn't make a difference here on the gist of freedom, but I just wanted people to see just how, you know, throughout the years, how we can start off with African Americans and, you know, through some marriage and change the family structure to look like a rainbow. Well, guess uh, what, Leslie? Look what look what happened to Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. You know, correct. correct. <laughs> we start um, out with a white man and an African American lady, and we end up with, uh, you know, as you say, a rainbow. A rainbow. And I know mm-hmm. that you guys got together, um, the Northups family. They had a family reunion, <clears throat> and the, it, it did look like a rainbow. Could you just tell the audience a little bit? about your encounter, you know, your first encounter with the um, African-American Northups at this family reunion or this gathering for Solomon Northup? Okay. I actually, before I even went to that, um, met up with a cousin of mine and had just, a, you know, just a little bit of a, a luncheon with her, and we sat and talked about, you know, different things because it was my first meeting with her. Um, I am aware of the other side of our family, which actually comes from my grandfather's marriage to an African-American woman. 
Mm-hmm. But anyways, in, in short, we sat, we met, we talked a little bit about, you know, different things, family-related and some not family-related, you know, and bringing ourselves up dating uh, with both her family and mine. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 going back to your main question, I found out about the Solomon Northrop uh, annual family uh, event because I had never I attended way back in I think 1995-96 when I found out and my mom is actually the one who uh, kept in contact with Aunt Victoria and um, this particular group uh, met at Sampson State Park out around uh, Seneca Lake area, Geneva. And we all got together, and it was uh, interesting to meet everyone and not know anyone. Um, I did know of Aunt Victoria. I had seen her, talked to her, you know, sporadically throughout my life. I also, um, my father's siblings are um, technically African-American. Um, on their birth certificates, they're listed as Negro, and on uh, some of the census, they are also listed as Negro, although they did pass. Um, but going back to the Solomon Northrop event, that year was 2013, two years ago. I had gone to a conference that was being held at Saratoga Springs by David Fitz who was giving a seminar on Solomon Northrop. He is a researcher and has done, you know, many, many, many papers that have been published as well as having, I believe, three books now that he has either authored or co-authored. In talking to him, you know, I had, you know, been embraced and learned a lot more about, you know, the dynamics of some of the things that he had learned about our family history. And while there, I was approached by a lady who happened to be Renee Moore. Uh, Renee Moore is the founder of uh, the Solomon Northrop Day of Celebration, which is the annual event that's held there in Saratoga Springs. She has since turned over um, the wheels of that um, event to Skidmore College that chairs it now and has since last year. But I met up with her and, you know, we had a nice little conversation and she told me about, you know, one thing and another about, you know, the event that happens every year. And anyways, I had that incentive and, you know, that sort of uh, push to make time and to actually attend. And when I did, I met up with... um, you know, a whole bunch of people. I think in that attendance we had about 70 folks from both her side and um, my side of the family. And it was quite interesting because, you know, in in some respect we were all sort of guarded because, you know, you have your own, uh, I don't know, thoughts about, you know, people that you don't know. You're, You're sort of, you know, stand off, you push off or however you want to say it, but in the long run, we all got together and we talked about different things and we met at a restaurant to have dinner after the event and, you know, it was kind of neat to to, to meet family that had been strangers. So, 
I'm saying that in the long run, we're all getting to know each other, and it's still new. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're embracing some things, and we're still, you know, talking about other things that, you know, are causing us issues. Like all families have, you know, different things to talk about. Some are not, you know, things we want to um, talk about, but they have to be in order to embrace each other a little bit more than what we have done in the past. Okay. Now, before we go any further, we can't help but talk about the current events. And, you know, it's a very sad day for America and African-Americans specifically, and especially we want to send our prayers out to South Carolinians. Um, We have a unique perspective because before this story hit where the nine people were murdered in South Carolina at the historical church that was founded by by, um, Denmark Vesey, we also had a story that was in the news about a woman passing for black, Rachel Dolezo. And Mm -hmm. I would like your unique perspective because here you are, visibly, you know, a a Caucasian woman who is embracing your, your black heritage. You may be able to identify and explain why she would do something um, like identify with black people, even well, though the only thing her I'm going family. To say about, okay, the only thing I'm going to say about the racial Delizo, um case is I don't want to jump on a bandwagon that is accusatory, and I don't want to be uh-huh. the one who says I'm accepting of it. I want all uh-huh. the information before I make a decision. I don't mm-hmm. know what her background was. I don't know what her family life was like. I don't know what prompted her to do the things that she has done. But, you know, there is a time and space because if we here in America, we are at a pinnacle or near enough to a pinnacle that we are dealing with racial issues that are so intense you know, that are um, almost like a keg of dynamite ready to explode. And there are so many things that not only the black folk have to look at and the white folk have to look at, but we need to find some common ground that we can work together because we have to do it for our children and our grandchildren. I get very emotional. <laughs> I can tell, and I can. And you're very sincere. Like I said, you've been on the show before, and I remember from the last interview um, your background, your family lineage, and how you know your, your background, mm-hmm. uh, how you developed and learned about your family lineage. So we we will move on, and we will talk about. Well, I get a lot lighter. of backlash. I get a lot of backlash, Leslie, because. You know, there are folks who assume things, and when they do, it, it they make you very uncomfortable. And some of the things that, you know, my history has taught me is to be a little bit more hesitant in knowing more things and becoming a little bit more transparent. I understand mm-hmm. there are. are those things. I understand that there there are those things and those times that that word transparency does not fit the situation. 
you know, mm-hmm. and I know people are going to say you're full of baloney or, or whatever, but, but I'm up in I'm, 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 I'm almost near my 80s, so I've got a lot of <laughs> experience. <laughs> 80 years old. I'm almost. almost I'm not going to say I'm knocking on that, that decade, but I'm almost. <laughs> and that's a blessing, right? You've seen a lot. Uh-huh. You've learned a lot. You're a wise woman. And um, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, I I I remember talking to you. Yeah, we we talked a lot on Facebook, and we you know we've done interviews and free interviews, and I always enjoy mm-hmm. talking to you and the insight that you give me. Um, from your your perspective and your experience is is incredible. So, you know, I enjoyed the last interview, and I know we're gonna enjoy this one as well. But um, well, I know now, I know from mm-hmm. being a kid growing up that you know, and I think you've read my story. But mm-hmm. when we left a lovely, cozy um, farm environment, and we went out to the big city, my Florida, dad, right? Excuse me. You moved to Florida, if I recall. Right. We we right. moved from Leedsport, New York. We went to a couple of places in the state of New York, and then we traveled the eastern seacoast down to Florida and ended up in Jacksonville. And that was oh, 1954-55, and we were looking at the civil rights there, you know, really stepping up in time, to say mm-hmm. the least. And every time you turned around, there was always something in the newspaper about a, an African who had, you know, uh, gotten killed, gotten hung, um, you know, and a whole bunch of crazy dynamics. And I'm just a kid. I, you know, I was 10, 11 years old, um, you know, maybe younger. I, I don't remember. But I I just uh, have that image in my head, and I'm thinking, here we are almost, uh, what, 60, 60 years from then? And mm-hmm. here we are with the same things going on. You know, right. it hasn't changed. It yeah. hasn't changed to the point where we can all sit down and have a decent conversation. You know, everybody mm-hmm. is in their own corner, and I don't see the flexibility. You know, I, I understand, believe me, the pain that African-American people feel. I know the pain that my father felt when he came home from service, and all he could do was talk about the way that he was treated as an African-American male in a white unit, you know. I know when he went out and, and worked, you know, there weren't a lot of jobs for people were, you know, of one particular race. It was an amalgam of a lot of folks. And he, being an African-American, was always the one pointed out to do the the butt-wiping jobs. You know, it might be not good language, but that is basically what he did. He, he mm-hmm. managed to work up and got to be a supervisor in construction. And, you know, fortunately for us, he was able to do a lot of traveling and work some, with some of the major companies. You know, he, he worked on the New York State Thruway. He worked at the Niagara Power Plant, you know, and helped get those things built. And, you know, we see, you know, what they do for us today. And down now, in from Florida, Florida mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and down in Florida, 
You know, he was treated as if he were the rug or the dirt swept under the rug, you know, and, and trashed on so much. And wow. when my mom and my dad and us kids used to go out together, you know, people would turn and call such nasty names that I never heard before. And, you know, there's everybody's heard them, so there's no sense of repeating that stuff. But right. even today, kids are taught, to say and do the same things. And here we right. are, how many generations? Right. Well, I have to ask you, you know, when you learned about Solomon Northup, how did you, you know, how did that transfer, that information about Solomon Northup transfer um, to you and, and make you feel, knowing the history of your childhood, you know? Oh, no, 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 no. Solomon Northrop was not new knowledge to me. Mm -hmm. Solomon Northrop I knew about when I was a kid. My mother, bless her soul, was very uh, open. I mean, she didn't hide things. And she knew that when she married my father that, you know, there was a little bit of uh, disdain between her parents who were, you know, French, Canadian, um, English, and Dutch. They weren't so happy, and Mom told us, told me this, that they weren't happy because she had met, fallen in love, and married my dad. Well, you know, over time, I think they gradually cooled off and were more accepting and, you know, all that other, you know, stuff that you have to uh, weigh and decide if you want family or if you want to be alienated. But my mother was the one who um, actually brought, uh, Solomon Northup to me and talked about it and, you know, one thing and another. And a lot of that boiled over because when my grandmother passed away um, at her funeral, there were people of both races there. And I didn't know, you know, the darker side of the family, if you will. I didn't know who those people were because they had not come to our house. We had not, you know, had, we had family picnics, but we never had our African-American side attend. And, you know, it was, uh, to me, a new awakening. But my mother, as far as Solomon Northup was concerned, she is the one who introduced him to me. She spoke of the family history. I mean, she didn't make it, you know, totally out of proportion or anything like that. She just told me a little bit about what he had done, who he was, and uh, the sacrifices that he had made, you know. Now, we can't go on any further in this interview without talking talking about Solomon Northup. Could you tell the audience who he is and about the film? Oh, heavens. I hope everybody who's listening has seen that film by now. (laughs) It came Mm -hmm. out in 2013. It was adapted by uh, John Ridley from a book that my uh, two-times great-grandfather had written in 1853. Um, the book was printed by the Derby and Miller Company, the publishing company actually in Auburn, New York. And um, it did, uh, um, I think there were about 30,000 copies of it that were uh, over time uh, put together, published, and sold. Uh, he did very well as far as, you know, selling that book. And actually it is considered a uh, slave narrative, but in part 
it actually is different than most of the slave narratives that folks have, uh, you know, have access to. I know here in uh, the place where the city where I live that the main library downtown has a um, room, actually one floor that's dedicated to um, the slaves' history, uh, the Underground Railroad, and you know all of that uh, period of time enrolled, and they have some of the older collections of books of the slaves' narratives. At any rate. Uh, Solomon's book is one that is set apart because he was very observant of the environment that he lived in. He almost had like a mind that was microscopic and picked up every single detail of the environment, of the people, of uh, the trades that were going on, the the sugar cane, the pig, um, cotton and you know uh, all of that stuff and uh, aside from that uh, he was very uh, matter of fact about the people that uh, were his owners he never used words that were denigrating he uh, never really tore these people up and you know uh, abused them, and gave a full picture of what their life was like, what their personalities were. You know, he was very much into being, I think, more the detective, uh, uh, looking at things and being very uh, um, objective. Um, There were tools that were used that he was familiar with because um, he, uh, rather his father, um, had a farm, and he learned to work and do with very di- uh, sorted tools that farmers used. And um, he actually brought an axe or built an axe that uh, the southern plantation had not seen nor used in the past, and it was very uh, uh, productive uh, in that the. Uh, when they went to chop trees and things like that, it was something that they had not seen before. Um, I don't know how technology works from one part of the nation to another, but evidently that particular type of technology hadn't gone down south. He also, uh, Solomon for himself, had uh, was very creative, uh, more like a, an entrepreneur. He found ways to make himself busy, to... Uh, create jobs, if you will. Uh, One of those was uh, working on the Champlain Canal uh, as a rafter because he, um, there were a lot of lumber, uh, lumber, uh, I won't say mills around, what do you call those people? A lot of people who owned trees and needed them cut and needed those cut trees to be taken to the lumber mills to be sawed and so forth. Well, he's the one who decided that he was going to go about and invent this uh, um, task, this job, and uh, built a raft and just took the logs down to the mill. So he had his own business for a while. Um, he wasn't rich. He did marry. He did have three children. 
And um, he was, uh, I think he was the person who had to be on the move all the time, who had to be doing something. And the 12, he left, uh, actually he met up with uh, two men in uh, Saratoga and they um, kidnapped him at uh, Washington, D.C. Um, they encouraged him to come there only because they had a, a job for him. Uh, Solomon did play the violin. He was an excellent violinist. He did uh, perform in the hotels and at different homes in uh, Saratoga Springs and in that area. Um, But because of his need for money, the promise by these two men was that he would receive a dollar a day and three dollars a week. Well, for him, that was a lot of money, considering he probably only made a dollar a week. But their economy and everything like that was entirely different um, compared to what we have today. So anyways, like I said, he did uh, leave uh, looking forward to this job. He thought it was only going to be like for a week, maybe two weeks. He did not tell his wife that he was leaving. And literally he vanished off the map for a period of 12 years. By the time he got to Washington, he ended up in a jail, uh, a a cell, uh, in chains. He was sold spent his time in uh, Louisiana and uh, um, the Bayou and, um, you know, had three different owners and was traded, you know, from here to there to, uh, um, you know, as uh, when you, there weren't jobs available down there on the plantations. There was a period where it was slacking off. He was traded from one plantation to the other to uh, help out with that owner. And also with... Uh, one of his plantation owners, he also, uh, the owner himself owed money, so he um, sold um, Solomon to another individual who was not as polite. Wow. But in the now, long run, after, after 12 years, um, there was a letter that fortunately Solomon was able to get out of uh, the ex plantation to the people up north, to his wife, and thank goodness for these folks um, up north, uh, they did uh, put a petition together for him, and uh, eventually he was rescued. He was he never escaped. He was rescued um, by right. uh, the Henry family. The, I'm sorry? The movie, the, the, the movie did not really talk about how there were laws in place to rescue um, citizens, African-American citizens that were kidnapped. And his wife petitioned the governor with the help of some abolitionists, and they exercised their rights. Um, Their laws were called the Liberty Laws, which were on the book. Right. Right. And, um, you know, they they spent a lot of time on the mistress or the the new girlfriend on the plantation, and they really didn't give credit to his wife, who I consider to be like a Winnie Mandela for him. She was an advocate. Well, the movie didn't even give credit to the, the movie didn't even give credit to the lawyer. In fact, the movie didn't give credit to the time that it took for them to file the petition, to follow up with New York State, and then to come down again to Louisiana and uh, go through that process too, because it wasn't an easy overnight uh, 
um, no. you know, procedure. And no, you're talking about you're talking mm-hmm. about slave laws. Um, right. There were slave laws uh, that were specific, and they're called the Black Code or the uh, uh, Code Noir uh, laws. Right. And those laws mm-hmm. were instituted way back in the 1680s, 1660s. And mm-hmm. they were written specifically by each state. Eventually, as the state, you know, matured and they had, you know, a whole host of slaves. These laws were written so that they were very restrictive as to what an African American or an African slave could do. You know, and, you know, it was like, you know, turning around and spitting in the wind. That's not on the law or on the books, but the thing was they could not do. They could not get married. They could not uh, have their families. They could not go to church. They mm-hmm. couldn't hold and that's clear. And, and those laws are clear in almost every slave movie. But what I was upset about was that they didn't talk about the liberty laws and, like you said, you know, the, the unity, they didn't show how the Underground Railroad really worked as far as freeing people and rescuing people through the use of intellect and the writings and petitions and how successful they were without, you know, using a gun based on just working well, within well, the boundaries movie, of the law. Right, but that movie in itself and the book does not address the Underground Railroad. No. But that's part. Solomon that doesn't talk railroad. about the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make mm-hmm. reference in the book about it. His affiliation mm-hmm. with the Underground Railroad came after his rescue. Mm-hmm. Okay, because right. he did go around after the book was published. He did go around to different, uh, you know, venues to basically talk about his um, events that, uh, about the book. Uh, you know to sell the book like everybody does today. Right. And uh, in, in the process of going about to these different uh, places, he met up with other abolitionists. He spoke with Frederick Douglass, you know, and in Syracuse, New York. That is documented. And he may have mm-hmm. met up with Harriet Tubman for all that I know. I'm not sure, you know, if they had a face-to-face, but he was aware of her. And part yeah. of our history is connected to her indirectly because my, my uh, let me see, Frank Northrup married a great, great grandniece of Harriet Tubman. They had no children, mm-hmm. but still there is that, you know, little tweak of uh, her connection with her. So, mm-hmm. you know, well, we, look at, we look at all things. <laughs> But there you, is a you, did a, you did a phenomenal job explaining the story. And um, now, as we close, could you tell the audience in our last 10 minutes about your call of action? Okay. Oh, yeah. Our call of action for, you know, all the work that has been done is a petition uh, to honor Solomon Northrup with uh, the presidential uh Medal of Freedom honor. Um, we have it out on Facebook. It is, um, I do believe you have it on your website as well, Leslie? Mm-hmm. Yes. Excuse me? Okay. Yes, I do. I have it. 
Um, it's a, uh, there also is a, a memo uh, that has gone through the White House. So hopefully, you know, I don't know if people can access that online or if it's just for, you know, the personnel there at the Capitol. I, I, I don't know how that worked. Actually, my niece was supposed to uh, uh, be calling in as well because she is Okay, what is your new name? Melissa Howell. Hey, let's she, get on the line. Melissa, yeah, she, are, you, are, you, are you on the line? Hi, Leslie. Yeah, how are you, Leslie? Great. I'm fine. Um, how are you? Awesome. Your 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 aunt is doing a phenomenal job, as I just mentioned, and now she she's mentioned you. Yeah. Would you like to tell us more about this Medal of Honor? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, um, uh, for those um, who are um, maybe just coming to the conversation or who have been here for the long term, um, I am the founding director of the Solomon Earth of Legacy. Um, it is an organization I formed um, a year ago, January, um, in honor of our legacy uh, and namesake, Solomon Earthup. And um, through uh, the organization's um, many efforts um, and research projects, um, the Medal of Freedom petition uh, came forth. And uh, it is a, a very uh, meritorious honor. Um, it once was established as the Medal of Freedom for uh, World War II veterans. And um, uh, during John F. Kennedy's presidency, he enacted a revision of the award and had it renamed the Presidential Medal of Freedom, opening opening up uh, the um, medal to those um, who are not only veterans but who contribute um, to other areas of security, national interest, world peace, um, and other cultural endeavors. And um, the award is open to citizens as well as uh, foreign um, uh, scholars. And um, with, uh, going back to um, research, uh, a lot of um, education certainly has been the basis of uh, discovering my heritage and um, learning of our extensive uh, family of descendants and uh, also getting to know our ancestor um, by going into the field and uh, retracing footsteps and um, drawing from those interpretative centers um, a sense of time, place, and person. And I found myself very um, overwhelmed, uh, fulfilled in many ways um, in terms of a, a familial connection. And so with that, um, I had taken on um, some other projects, and this was inspired not only by the research that has been done and is ongoing, um, but also in the spirit of our ancestor. Um, as we've 
you know, heard a lot of conversation discussing uh, cultural relevance and what is the significance of 12 years of slave and, and um, of Solomon as a, you know, enslavement and um, how, how can we utilize, utilize the resurgence of his memoir and uh, the film 12 Years a Slave, uh, directed by Steve McQueen, and uh, prior works of Solomon S. Odyssey by Gordon Parks, uh, to help, uh, facilitate, uh, help to facilitate through conversation uh, realizing a timeline of the past, not forgetting the past, but uh, perhaps have a better understanding um, and how we can move forward um, through forgiveness and acts of compassion and, um, you know, time as we understand it to be that um, it's not anything that um, can be forgotten. So I I found that it was just out of his contributions, um, through literature and through activism and um, you, a true sense of humility and integrity and character of a person who knew nothing but a life of freedom before he was kidnapped and um, certainly couldn't understand, you know, a lot of, you know, self-identification throughout that enslavement. And that, in part, you know, caused him some, you know, duress. However, he rose from it. Very few were able to rise out of the soil and and free of shackle and resume their lives. And um, I believe that that is certainly uh, a start, uh, a reminder of the person that he was in his community. His community found him to be a very upstanding individual. He was talented. He was skilled. And um, there was a great sense of bravery on his part. And for that, and more so because he took on the abolitionist movement for himself, helping others to freedom and um, engaging his community members to let them, you know, sort of sort of foray into, you know, these discussions that they were already taking place about anti-slavery and sharing their ideas and their experiences with one another to help perpetuate the collective, uh, which was to, you know, abolish slavery and find well, equality for all. I hate to jump in here, but we're going to have to uh, end, end the show in a few minutes. But um, how long do you think this process will take before you actually see this dream come true. Okay. Well, um, there is no exact timeline that is known. However, um, mm-hmm. the petition was launched uh, on June 7th uh, through the White House's portal, We the, we the People. And uh, mm-hmm. the petition site uh, exercises the um, number of signatures that are required. Um, it has set a goal of 100,000 signatures by July 7th, and um, that is a few days short of Solomon's uh, 208th birthday, and um, I'm hopeful. However, um, okay. there, is sec- there is a second phase to the petition, which will be a formal recommendation uh, that will be drafted uh, 
and um, addressed to the president uh, for his consideration of Simon Essex for this uh, incredible honor. Um, it is the nation's highest honor for a citizen, um, which is the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And um, I do believe through research um, it is very well possible that he will be the first slave to ever have been posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, I have only found uh, through research one individual by the names of James U.B. Blake, who was awarded the Medal of Freedom, who was the son of slaves. So, okay. I, I so what do we have to do? Well, um, we need to uh, rally the signatures uh, via support. Uh, we certainly know that cultural relevance then and now, a, a 19th to the 21st century, is that uh, we are still uh, surrounded by the, the weaknesses of slavery um, in our um, society. Um, that's a global concern. And um, we need people to go to the petition. We need them to go to justicefreedom.com. Um, if you have the link posted there, um, they can go to the Solomon Northup Legacies Facebook page where they can find a link as well. Uh, Solomon Northup Legacies on Twitter, at Northup Legacy. We're on Instagram, Northup Legacy. And um, you can find us, you can find Solomon because certainly Solomon Northup was a 19th century man. And wow. it also is open, it also is open, Leslie, it's an international um, drive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes, okay. of course. Uh, it is a collective effort. We can all be, as my aunt is uh, parlaying into, you know, we are in the 21st century, certainly has relevance. There are so many aspects of today living in slavery. And as a collective group of abolitionists, we can all act. We can act by signing the petition and urging the president to consider this American hero. And I do not consider him lost. I consider him once again renounced and found and readily, you know, willing to speak through us. So I I implore everyone who's listening to please sign that petition because your voice counts for those who cannot speak for themselves. Oh, don't, don't cry. You're so emotional. People, you hear how passionate our guest is. That is Irene, a Solomon Northup descendant. Uh, we're going to leave on this note. Irene, you will be back on with great news. We'll be celebrating when he uh, receives that medal. And thank and I you, too. Thank you very, very thank much. Thank you so much. It's such a God pleasure, right. Leslie. God bless you, too. And you, ha- you have a great evening and continue doing the great work. Thank you much. You, as well. you too. Uh-huh. You too. Thank All you, right. Leslie. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. Good night. 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 More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.